Back in the 1970s, when I was a, a middle school-aged boy, my father, who was a pastor and a terrific preacher, loved to tell the story about President Lyndon Johnson during his time in the White House. According to my dad, President Johnson had three dogs that loved to follow him everywhere. No matter where President Johnson went, whether it was a, a, at a podium in a press briefing or a meal with his family or something in the Oval Office, those three dogs, they just loved him. In fact, they loved him and followed him so much, President Johnson decided to name them Surely, Goodness, and Mercy. If you know Psalm 23, you should get the joke there. Surely goodness and mercy were fought. It was one of the original dad jokes. That's all I'm going to say. I thought of my dad while I was working on the sermon this week. That story came to mind. And I always liked it when I was a kid. I thought it was kind of cute and kind of funny. So I Googled this week to see if I could discover how many dogs and what their names were that President Johnson actually had. I found my way to the President Lyndon Johnson presidential library website. I searched dogs. He didn't have three dogs. He had five. None of them were named, surely, goodness or mercy. I'm not quite sure where my dad got that joke. It may have come from his own mind. But I like the story nonetheless. Because like a dog who loves us, like a puppy who just wants to be with you, goodness and mercy, this old poet is telling us, follows us everywhere, just wants to be with us, just wants to bless us, just wants to bring us gifts of goodness and grace, mercy and love. I noted in my email on Friday to the congregation that the word in Hebrew for follow literally means pursue. Most of the time when it appears in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, it appears in a negative connotation as the pursuit of enemies. You can find it in Exodus. You can find it in the prophet Hosea. You can, find it, you can find it also in a couple of different places in the book of Psalms. And it really implies that you are in grave danger. Your enemy is pursuing you. You're frightened for your very life. But this Hebrew poet in Psalm 23 playfully turns that word around and says, now you're being pursued, not by enemies, but by goodness and mercy. It's a marvelous blessing. And maybe there's an implication here that what we're invited to do is to slow down so we can be caught. To stop, stop pursuing ourselves, whatever it is we think we need. For many of us, it might, it might be an attempt to earn our way into God's favor or a spouse's favor or a friend's or a family's or work or somewhere else, maybe it's time to let go of those pursuits so that goodness and mercy can finally catch up to us. Maybe it's time to just simply slow down and receive them. The writer Anne Lamott, she says that everything slows down when we stop trying to fix the unfixable. There's great wisdom in her words there. Think about this for a moment. What about you? What about you and your life? Have you ever experienced brokenness, woundedness? Have you fallen far short of perfect? 
Maybe it's time to stop trying to fix the unfixable and simply receive these marvelous gifts. Have you ever tried to live up to somebody else's false image of who you're supposed to be? Maybe it's a parent or a spouse. Maybe it's a teacher or a friend, a coach or a pastor. Maybe it's yourself. Can you let go of that pursuit of that false image of who you think you're supposed to be and just be who you are? Just be whose you are? A loved child of God? Anne Lamott continues to to help us here. Let's put her words on the screen. Mercy is radical kindness. Mercy means offering or being offered aid in desperate straits. Mercy is not deserved. It involves absolving the unabsolvable, forgiving the unforgivable. Mercy brings us to the miracle of apology, given and accepted, to unashamed humility when we have erred or forgotten. Leave it up there for a moment, guys. I'm gonna focus on that middle sentence. Mercy brings us to the miracle of apology. Do you see what she's inviting us to do? She's inviting us to be vulnerable enough to say, I'm sorry, to admit I'm wrong, to admit I've caused harm, that there is now brokenness in the relationship. It's a beautiful word, a vulnerable word, honestly. Brene Brown, the last 10 years or so, has helped us understand that vulnerability takes courage, and that to be courageous is to be vulnerable. This same idea is woven throughout the pages of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The acknowledgement of the need to restore or reconcile, to apologize, is not a sign of weakness, but of strength, of a willingness to acknowledge the need to mend what has been broken. In many ways, this is the work of what Jesus came to do to help us see more fully and completely, to invite us to understand the same idea that the psalmist is working on here to receive the good gifts of mercy and goodness to let them to, def- to define who we are. Here's, here's perhaps a way that works when we finally recognize our own brokenness. Fred Craddock is the one who tells a story, a story that is probably as old as humankind itself. It's of a mother sitting out in front of her home watching her child play. The child is running and scurrying from here to there, sometimes looking behind, behind to see what's the imaginary person who's chasing them. They're just still running and laughing and this is a joyous moment. Mom calls out and says, be careful. Watch where you're going. Have fun. Run hard, but be careful. Watch where you're going. And then all of a sudden, it happens. And you know it. You've probably seen it. There's a stumble, a trip, and a fall. The skin of the knee meets the gravel and the dirt. There are tears. There's brokenness of the skin. A little bit of blood appears and there's crying. And what does mom do? Does mom give a lecture? I told you to slow down. No. What does she do? She goes out to her little one, stoops down low enough to pick her up, pulls her into her arms, goes back to the front of the house, sits down on on maybe the porch, and says to her child, let me kiss it. This is the most ancient medicinal myth there is. Let me kiss it to make it better. She does. And the child just leans more deeply back into mother's arms. And then the child looks up into mommy's face and sees that there are tears streaming. Mommy, why are you crying? 
Because when you cry, I cry. When you hurt, I hurt. And in that moment, the child feels better, not because of the kiss upon the knee, but the tears upon the cheeks. Professor Craddock goes on to say, this is the message of the cross. This is what the cross reminds us of, that God came down to us and stooped low enough to us. Jesus' story begins on Christmas and it ends on Good Friday. It is the story of God stooping low enough, bending down far enough, deep enough into our dying, into our death, into our hells, as it were. Do you know that Peter wrote a letter to the church, the early church? It's in your Bible. And in that letter, he said, Jesus descended down into hell. Now, whether you take that metaphorically or literally, it doesn't matter. It makes the same point. It is the promise that God will go to hell to stoop low, low enough to pick you up, hold you tight in the arms of everlasting love. And when you look at God's face, there will be tears because God cries when you cry. God weeps when you weep. God hurts when you hurt. It may seem unusual to bring the story of the cross into a sermon on Psalm 23, but let's back up to the earlier part of the reading. What did it say? Yea, though I walk, I've memorized it in the King James. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Is there a more powerful image for people of Christian faith than that of the cross? This man has gone through the valley of the cross, the valley of the shadow of death. We don't know what his crisis is. We don't know what he's experienced. All we know is that he's been to hell and he was found there by God. He was found and walked with through the very passageway of hell itself. And then the text we read, this, the, the reminder that we read a, a moment ago, it's a beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful image of a table set before his enemies. I'll say a little bit about the enemies in a moment. Set before his enemies, he's anointed with oil. To be anointed with oil in antiquity in ancient Hebrew society was to be honored. It also was a way of, of healing. Perhaps there are wounds that have been healed by the, by the oil. So he's been healed and honored, and then a table is set before him with his enemies looking on, and yet he is as safe and secure as he can possibly be. And his cup, did you hear it? His cup overflows. It overflows. The Hebrew word for overflows literally means saturates. His cup has been saturated with wine. Maybe the entire table and meal is saturated with wine. I found a scholar who looked up the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew Bible that was done about 100 years before the time of Jesus, and those old Hebrew scholars used a Greek word that said made drunk. My cup overflows, and I was made drunk in front of my enemies. Now, let me be clear about something here. This is not a sermon saying that you should get drunk in front of people you don't like. That is not what I'm saying. Sometimes we call that uh, holiday Thanksgiving, but that's not what I'm talking about. 
No, what is it? It's a powerful image, somewhat evocative of the one that Jesus uses in the Gospel of Luke, of the great Thanksgiving, the great banquet at the end of all time. You can find allusions to it in the book of Revelation as well, that in eternity there will be this marvelous banquet where all of us will gather, and all, by the way, means all, where all of us will gather and be scattered about. There will be more than enough food for everyone, wine, food, dancing, singing, laughing, joy for eternity. That's the great promise. The psalmist wants us to see that as well. You know, I've been working on planning my funeral. I'm fine. I did have surgery on my hand this week, and I survived, so that's a good thing. But I've just been thinking a lot, a lot more about the things I want said and done as I'm getting older. Maybe some of you experience the same sort of thing. It's a helpful thing for your pastors, by the way, if you have some notes on the ideas you want for, for your service. I used to think that I would not want Psalm 23 read. I've changed my mind. I want it in the service. I want folks to hear it on that day. One of the reasons is the beauty of the imagery that it, that it evokes, and also its familiarity. Last week, after the first part of this sermon series, I had dozens of people say to me, at nine, at 10, and at 11, I can't hear Psalm 23 without my eyes filling with tears. It reminds me of a funeral for a loved one. It reminds me of a time when I was in deep fear and those words got me through. It's a beautiful text. But here's the thing. Ultimately, it's not about the promise of eternal life. I mean, you can infer it, certainly. But ultimately, what the, what the poet is saying I want to live all my days. I want to live all my life in the house of God, in the way of God. He's talking about the here and now. He's talking about living his life now in the way that God invites us to live with goodness and mercy at the center of who we are and just literally spreading that same joy and love wherever we might go. That's the power of it. I mean, think about this. If you read Jesus, read all of Jesus' teachings in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read, read all four Gospels sometime when you have a few hours and make a list of all the teachings he gives about how to get into heaven and all the teachings he gives about how to love your neighbor. I guarantee you, how to love your neighbor is going to way outweigh how to get into heaven. It's an invitation to slow down, to put aside whatever false image of you that somebody else has tried to force on you or that you yourself have tried to squeeze yourself into. Let go of that. No longer do we need to try to earn our way to God. God has already come to us. Stoop down low enough and folded us in the arms of heaven's love, inviting us to give in to the pursuit of goodness and mercy.